Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. We, as many of you know, are partnered with a team of missionaries of international workers in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And while our partners were not featured in that video, this is the work that they are doing. They are taking the gospel into a country uh, where less than 1%, as it said in the video, less than 1% of people uh, are following Jesus in any sort of active way. And they're doing it by being present and by building relationships. Some of them have been there for years and years and years, slowly but surely building up relationship and trust and uh, finding opportunities to share Jesus with the people of Bosnia-Herzegovina. And we're partnered with them because we want to support the work that they're doing, the work God is doing through them and in Bosnia. Uh, And they are finding it uh, hard to take the gospel into a country where not too long ago, uh, just a couple decades ago, the country was split into three factions that were warring with each other. And by warring, I don't mean yelling at each other on social media. I mean actually shooting at each other. And the cross of Christ was held up as a reason. Here's why we want to kill you and your family, because we believe in this God. And so our partners are trying to reframe the cross of Christ from being a symbol of power and domination and violence into being a message of peace and hope and forgiveness. And that is a long uphill road that they are walking and walking faithfully. So one of the ways that we want to support them is we're sending a small team of people next summer, but we also want to support them by resourcing them for the ministry that they are doing. And so this weekend, uh, as we've been saying for the last few weeks, everything that comes in this weekend financially, everything that came in online this week, we are going to take and give to uh, the work that... Uh, our team in Bosnia-Herzegovina is, is doing to support them and some projects that they are working on. Uh, and we'll let you know more about that as it happens. We are, um, well, I'll say this way. Uh, typically, we put money where you tell us to. So if there's no designation to it, it goes to the ministry of East Hills, Uh, And we are so grateful for your generosity in supporting what God is doing in and through us as a community here. Uh, So typically, if you want money to go to our international workers, uh, you can check the box uh, either online or on our offering envelope that says Great Commission Fund, or you can fill in the name of one of our partners, and we will make sure that the money gets there. And the reason that we do that is not because we don't want to support them as an organization, but because we want each of us to choose that we are giving to the work that God is doing around the world and make the intentional choice to support those who have been sent and those we are partnered with. So typically, we ask that you designate it, it'll go there. That's also true this weekend. If you designate the money for something specific, it will go there. But everything that comes in generally uh, is going to go this weekend 
to the work that God is doing in Bosnia-Herzegovina. So if you have an end of year, a gift that you've been thinking about giving to somewhere, maybe this is that somewhere. If you uh, want to give something above and beyond what you gave this month, this would be a great place to do that. Uh, If this is the week that you bring your regular offering, that is also fantastic. All of it will go to support God's work, in this case, to support God's work in Bosnia-Herzegovina. So uh, as we uh, uh, collect uh, later our uh, Thanksgiving offering, uh, we will ask you just like every week uh, to put your offering in the little black box in the back. Uh, But I wanna pray for this particular offering and what God may do with it. Father, we come with hope. Uh, Hope for what you want to do, what we know your heart is for in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Father, would this gift be a blessing to those who have responded to the call to go as you have called them to that place and to those people to love and to serve and to build relationship and to share the hope they have in you. Father, would uh, you continue to bless the generosity of this people? Would you continue to bless the work that uh, our partners in Bosnia are doing? We thank you for the ways that you are at work in our community, the ways you are at work in us. And I pray that this morning is part of that. In our generosity, in our worship, in what we learn as we dig into scripture this morning, as we talk more about who you are, Jesus, would you continue your work in us to form us, to communicate your love to us, to communicate your love through us. And that may, may that be true in our giving as well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, The story that we are about to tell uh, is a true story, uh, albeit one that seems utterly preposterous because it is a story about a teenage girl who was doing everything she knew how to do to follow God faithfully in her life, minding her own business, following her God one day at a time, when an angel shows up in her life. And not one of those hallmark angels that looks cute, but like an angel angel in all of its glory and splendor. And that angel told her this. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever and his kingdom will never end. Now, this is overwhelming to young Mary for a number of reasons, not the least of which, uh, the angel said, you're going to have a son, but she hasn't done the things that lead to being able to have a son. And the angel said, don't worry, we got this. Uh, The spirit of God is going to shadow over you and you will become pregnant. And that's what happened. And understandably, when this story got to her fiance, Joe, he was a little incredulous and a little cynical about the whole thing. 
until an angel showed up to him too and said, I know the story sounds preposterous, but it's true. The story is true and it's gonna be okay. Now, for these expectant parents, they must have wondered, as all expectant parents seem to wonder, what is going to become of this child? There is a lot of fame and expectation and pressure baked into these titles that the angel told Mary their son would fulfill. And then this baby that has been declared the son of the most high and the ruler over all of God's people is born among the livestock and placed in a feeding trough. Now, where there are livestock, there are ranch hands and shepherds, and soon enough, the shepherds show up to this little baby in the feeding trough, appointed there by a whole army of angels this time. And they are in awe and in wonder, and they rejoice, not so much because of a new life, although we rejoice over that, not so much because the baby was cute, although I'm sure he was cute because babies are cute but because of what they expected this life might become. Foreign dignitaries from faraway places came and wondered as they wandered at who this little boy might grow up to be. And whatever these wanderers expected... I think we can be pretty confident they had no idea what was actually coming, how the story would actually play out, whatever their expectations were. For us, in hindsight, knowing the rest of the story, we can be confident that they didn't expect this story. The closest we see in the Christmas story to someone who might have expected what was coming is a prophet uh, by the name of Simeon. And Simeon is not a character we talk about a lot in the Christmas story, but a significant one. An elderly man who had been promised by God that he would not die until he had seen the Savior of the world, the Son of the Most High. And he was in the temple one day, as was probably his practice, when Mary and Joseph showed up with an eight-day-old little boy, and Simeon got to take this little boy in his arms, and he said this to the boy's brand-new mother. He said, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. Now, if you've ever been a new parent, you have probably been told at that stage by somebody that parenting is going to be hard because apparently that's one of the things we wanna tell new parents, hey, 
buckle up, it's going to get rough. Pierce your very soul is kind of another level. Hey, this is going to get hard. Simeon had some inkling of the pain Mary was going to experience. But nobody, including Mary and Joseph, could have known the exact ride they were in for. And with all of the wondering that's going on around him, it makes sense that this is just a baby boy. What can we expect? The the possibilities seem endless. The possibilities are going to fit into their expectations of who this promised one is going to be. But surely, when he grows up, when he becomes a man who can talk for himself, who can tell his own story, surely then people will know what to expect because he will explain it and they will get it and they will know what's coming. But as we read through the story of Jesus's life, story after story shows people misjudging again and again. The people are amazed by his power and teaching, but still their expectations of him are based on what they want him to be, not what he actually says. The powerful repeatedly misjudge his character and intentions. Even those closest to him, those who know and admire his character, repeatedly demonstrate they have no idea what he's really all about. They can't square up their desire for power with his actual mission. The deepest thoughts of many were revealed and souls were pierced. Eventually, this man Jesus will reject the draw of power and control and give up his life, choosing to demonstrate power over hell rather than demonstrating power over this world. But the good news of Jesus is that his death is not the end of his story or of his movement or of his impact. Because two days later, he rose from the dead. The baby in the hay had gone on to demonstrate power over life and death itself. It was only then that his followers began to understand what he had been telling them, understand who he truly was and what he was truly about. And so they began to tell the story, the story of this heaven-sent baby, king, savior, and how he had changed the world as we know it. And their telling of that story would spread the movement and change the world. And over the last 2,000 years, billions of people have said, yes, I believe that story is true. Which brings us to us. Not sitting staring at a baby in a manger right in front of us, but with 2,000 years of hindsight, we know how his whole life played out. We know the story. We've collected his teachings. We talk about them on a regular basis. We get to get in line with the billions of everyday people who are following Jesus every day. And so surely, those of us who believe now, who follow Jesus now with 2,000 years of hindsight, surely we would understand the character and the mission of Jesus. 
But I want to read these words again and see if they don't just apply to the people of Jesus' day, but to the church today as well. And we'll, we'll just say the American church because that's the one we are a part of. The people are amazed by his power and teaching, but still their expectations of him are based on what they want him to be, not what he actually says. The powerful repeatedly misjudge his character and intentions. Even those closest to him, those who know and admire his character, repeatedly demonstrate they have no idea what he's really all about. They can't square up their desire for power with his actual mission. The deepest thoughts of our hearts don't always match who Jesus said he was, is, and what he's all about. For example, recently two uh, theologically conservative Christian groups, and I want to be careful that it's theologically conservative because we're not talking about politically conservative. So theologically conservative, you could also say theologically traditional. Okay, so theology is our study of God. It's what we understand to be true, what we believe about who God is. And their teachings are fairly traditional. Their beliefs are fairly traditional in, in that way. And they did a survey of over 3,000 Americans and what they asked them to do is they put statements in front of them or over the phone. I don't really know how they did this survey, but they did the survey and they would put out a statement and they would ask for some agree or disagree responses. And there was a range. You could strongly disagree or somewhat disagree. Say, I'm not sure. You could, strong, you could somewhat agree. I get that wrong every time. Or strongly agree. It's okay. From strongly disagree to strongly agree, a range of responses. And, and they put up statements uh, like, like this. Oh, I missed the series title. Let's do that. Who is Jesus really? That's significant. Anyway, we're going to talk about this for the next number of weeks. We're going to answer that question starting today. Did I, did I miss it? Checking the notes. Nope. Amen. All right. Okay. Got an amen. Oh, I just flew right past it. Ooh, boy. All right. We're going to get our act together one of these seconds. All right. Statements like this. The Bible is my highest authority. It's important to me personally to encourage others to trust Jesus as their savior. Again, these are disagree to agree kind of statements, okay? So you put these in front of people. Do you strongly disagree, strongly agree, somewhere in the middle, okay? Only Jesus' death on the cross could remove the penalty of my sin. Only those who trust Jesus receive eternal salvation, okay? So they ask them, Statements like this. And again, they're not just talking to Christians. They're talking to 3,000 random Americans. Now, there was a significant group of people in this study, about a quarter of the study, who would say, I agree with all four of these statements. And again, we would, we would consider these traditional Christian teachings, okay? And when you do a study like this, you can take a group that agrees on some part of the study, 
and go, okay, well, let's pull this group of people out and see how they answered the rest of the questions on, on a study or a survey. So they did that. They said, okay, people who believe these four things, they called them evangelicals. And so I'm going to use that word too, even though the word evangelical is all kinds of complicated right now, but, but that's the word they use. So we will too. They pulled this group of people out and said, all right, people who believe these four things, we're going to call them evangelicals and we're going to see what else they agree with or disagree with in this survey, in this study. Okay. So we've got this group of people that has these traditional uh, Christian teachings that they believe in. I, I, I do want to say we as a church, uh, our church, our denomination, we also agree with all four of these statements. I don't think there's anything radical or, or out of the ordinary about these. We would agree with these two. And so I don't know how you would answer the rest of the questions in this survey, but it does become interesting and worth us looking at to go, well, how do people who would agree with us in these things in, in a survey uh, answer some other important topics? When we look at their other responses, the responses of these evangelicals uh, in the rest of the survey, there are some traditional Christian teachings that they really, really line up with. Specifically, the ones that they seem to most line up with are traditional Christian sexual ethics. So things like no sex outside of marriage, before marriage, whatever, okay? So things like that, they, they seem to line up very closely in their sexual ethics with traditional Christian teaching. Now, there are also some areas of traditional Christian teaching that they don't align with. Specifically, huge chunks of them don't line up with traditional Christian teachings on who Jesus is. So we've got a group of people that we would say are traditional Christian believers who seem to have their traditional Christian sexual ethics right, but not their theology of who Jesus is. To note, we don't say we are everyday people following sexual ethics every day. And yet, it appears that we are more sure as a group of our sexual ethics than of the character and mission and makeup of the Savior that we follow. We say we're following Jesus every day, and yet it seems that Jesus' followers today aren't that different from the shepherds wondering at the manger or the powerful who misjudged, that we keep letting our desires determine who Jesus is to us rather than letting who Jesus is change our desires. And the other thing that I pull out of this study, maybe unfairly, but it sure appears to me from both my own experience and this study that we have spent the last 50 years or so of Christian teaching primarily focusing on the priorities of the world of sex and power and influence and addressing those things. And there's absolutely a place to address all of those things. But we spend so much time addressing those things. We haven't been talking about who Jesus is. And so as I already mentioned, because I've got a happy trigger finger, we are going to spend the next few weeks answering this question. Who is Jesus really? My notes just disappeared too. Okay, we're doing, we're doing great. Technology and I are getting along wonderfully today. Uh, there are whole seminary classes 
about this topic. And we are going to attempt in five weeks to answer it as thoroughly as we can. Who is Jesus really? In the New Testament, Matthew, who was one of the followers of Jesus, one of his disciples, one of those who knew him best, records Jesus asking his disciples this question. This is Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is a title Jesus used for himself, and next week we're going to talk more about the significance of that. But he asked them this question, and they come up with some answers. Some people say this, some people say that. And then, then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. We want to learn who God has revealed Jesus to be, not who human beings say he is. And that means that we do trust the Bible to be our ultimate source and ultimate authority on who Jesus is. For instance, the Bible teaches that Jesus was born to a human woman, as we read earlier. He says he is son of man, son of humanity, We read that he suffered very human pain and died as only a human being can. One of the earliest uh, heresies, these false beliefs about who Jesus is, one of the earliest heresies about Jesus was that Jesus wasn't human and that he didn't actually die. There was a significant group of people who believed that Everything physical, everything carnal, this flesh, all of it is evil and wrong and bad. And so God would never take on all of this evil and awful. And and so Jesus couldn't have. He could not have actually been human. And so he didn't actually die, which explains the whole resurrection thing, because he didn't actually die. so, So he just was always alive the whole time. And the people like Matthew like John, who we'll read from in a second, these people who followed Jesus around, who ate with him, who touched him and gave him a hug, they said, no, 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 he was very, very real and very human and suffered right along with us. So we want to know this important truth of who Jesus is, that Jesus was human just like us. Jesus was human like us. And we're going to spend some time this Christmas season digging into why that is so important to what we believe, that Jesus is human like us. Now, this uh, survey I mentioned earlier shows us that just believing that the Bible is our authority doesn't mean we automatically believe what's in it. For instance... That group of evangelicals that I mentioned, that the Bible is our highest authority, we should all trust in Jesus, 25% of them said that this statement is true. Okay, they, they agreed with this statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, before I point out what's wrong in this, and some of you already know, but some of you may be looking at this going, I don't know what's wrong with it. 
And I want you to know that that's okay. We're not putting these up here to laugh at people or to shame people or, or to go, well, I can't believe they would believe such things. In fact, if you learn something new today because you believe one of these things that we're gonna talk about, that's amazing. Like if nobody here or online learns anything new today, um, I'm just wasting everybody's time. So hopefully somebody is learning something new today. So if you believe one of these things, I am so glad that you are hearing this and we can talk about it. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. The problem with this statement is the Bible is clear that Jesus was not created by God. Now, I, I do want to be fair that, that maybe they just got caught or they were listening to it on the phone and they heard first and greatest and they were like, yes, Jesus is the first and greatest and they just didn't hear the second part of it. That's possible. But even more people said this statement was true. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Nearly 50% of those evangelicals, people who said the Bible is the highest authority in my life and we all need to trust in Jesus, nearly 50% of them said this statement is true. They agreed with this statement at least somewhat. The Bible is very clear that Jesus was not created and is God. Jesus' disciple John, when he wrote his account of Jesus' life, started it with this beautiful poem, and he refers to Jesus as the word of God, and he starts his gospel, his story of Jesus, this way. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. Now, in fairness, both this verse and the second verse can be a little confusing. He existed in the beginning with God. Well, which is it? He was God or he was with God. And I'm not saying we're going to completely solve this mystery in the next four weeks, but we are going to talk about it. And it is important that we know as followers of Jesus, that Jesus is human like us and eternal and divine. The scripture is clear that Jesus was not created, that he is God. Mid-20th century author and, and I would argue theologian, C.S. Lewis, had a punchy way of putting this. He said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. That a man who claims to be divine cannot simply be a good teacher. For example, if I stood up here and said, surprise, I'm actually God in the flesh. I, yeah, some of you are laughing like, well, we know that's not true, which is good. I'm glad you know that's not true. Uh, uh, I would lose all of my teaching credibility immediately. You should not listen to anything I say after that unless I'm right, unless I'm telling the truth. C.S. Lewis put it this way. People often say about him, that is, Christ, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And he did not intend to. 
And even this group of evangelicals who say only Jesus' death can pay the penalty of my sin and only those who trust in Jesus receive eternal salvation. Even within this group, there is disagreement on this statement. God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus. So this would be one that we would agree with. And this is a much smaller disagreement, but 7% of people disagreed or weren't sure. In other words, 7% of Bible-believing Christians still think we can earn our way into heaven by being good enough. I, some days, would like that to be true. I would like to have to earn it and feel good about earning it. Most days, I'm very aware that I can't. And the good news of Jesus is that I don't have to. The Bible is clear that Jesus is the only one who could pay the cost and purchase our salvation. Jesus is the only one who could pay the cost and purchase our salvation. And we'll spend a week talking about why that is. One thing that all, or at least 99% of these Bible-believing Christians could agree with, and something that we believe too, is that Jesus is the coming king. That the one the angels declared as the one who will reign over God's people forever is the ruler of a kingdom that will never end. And our resurrected Lord has promised that he will come again to enact that kingdom on earth and to rescue us from the lies of this world. And we're going to talk about that too. You're going to have to stick with us into January to get to that one, but we're going to talk about that one too. So why does all this matter? Why is it not enough to simply know the right things to do, the right morals and ethics, the right behaviors? Why does it matter that we have a good, solid theology of Jesus that just sounds so heady and intellectual? What does it actually matter? And I do want to be clear. Please don't get me wrong. The, the teachings on behavior and morals are important. But, as we just said, it is not through the behaviors that we find salvation. Our, our hope is not based on our ability to act right. Jesus, on the one hand, didn't come to destroy the morals and ethics of God, but he also didn't come to give us more rules to pursue and, and abide by. He told us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And the purpose of the laws that God put in place over his people was to keep them in relationship with him and to make them better representatives of him in blessing the nations around them. Jesus came to fulfill the purpose so that we might be in relationship with God and be better representatives, have a better example to follow of how we represent God in this world and bless the people around us. Jesus didn't come to give us more rules, but rather to bring us into relationship. To bring us into relationship with an almighty and an eternal God. We mentioned earlier that Jesus said he is the light of the world. And to take that metaphor a little further, Jesus is our North Star. He is the one we set our compass to, the, the one that directs us where we are going. He is also the sun that we orbit around, 
that our lives revolve around who Jesus is every day. And he is so personal in his relationship with us, so present with us in our moment that he is also the guiding light for our next step. He is all of it. If we say that we are following Jesus, we're responding to the invitation of Jesus. And his invitation is not to come and be moral, to come and be better behaved. His invitation is to come and follow, to spend time with him, to become more like him, and then, yes, to behave more like him, to be loved and formed and known by him in relationship with him. Jesus came to be the Lord we obey, the example we follow, and the story we tell. Jesus came to be the Lord we obey, the example we follow, and the story we tell. He's the Lord we obey. We have to choose liar, lunatic, or Lord. We have to choose. Is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or is he Lord? And, and if you've never made that decision that clearly, if you came in believing that Jesus is a good moral teacher, so I guess I'll show up at a church on Sunday and see what Jesus might have to teach me. Or if maybe it's just been a really long time for you since you said, yeah, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. It is in many ways that simple of a first step to say, I want you, Jesus, to be Lord of my life. Now, Lord means that he is the one who directs your steps. It means that he is the one that you're following. And he, he is the one that we will obey over every other option. And if we accept his invitation to let him be Lord, and if you've been following Jesus for 60 years, but feel like today, and maybe every day, we need to renew that commitment, <laughs> Jesus, you are Lord of my life today or whether that's a decision you're making for the first time, and if it is a decision that you make today for the first time, please tell somebody who can walk these next steps and seasons with you. We would love to walk with you as you try to figure out what it means that Jesus is Lord of your life. But if we're gonna say that Jesus is the Lord we obey, if we accept his invitation to let him be Lord, shouldn't we know who we're following above all else? And he is the example we follow. If he's the pattern for our lives, that's more than just a set of behaviors. It's not just a bunch of dance steps. It's motivation and desire, purpose and mission. It's not just knowing the footsteps we're following in, but it's also where they're leading. And... Jesus is the story we tell. If we believe it's important, as the Bible tells us, to tell others about Jesus and the salvation that he offers them, what story are we telling? Are we telling a story about us and, and our morality and our superiority? Are we telling a story about a get-out-of-hell-free card? Or are we telling a story about a compelling savior, about a lover of our souls, about an invitation that is worth accepting and a leader worth following. 
So Jesus asks us, too, the same question he asked his first disciples. But who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? So who is this child, really? He is all he was promised to be. He is different than what we would expect and everything we need. He is eternity and divinity. He is the savior of our souls and our coming king. He is who he is no matter what we want to believe. And he is inviting you. Come and follow me. So let's step into that relationship together. And as we've talked about the last few weeks, the way we step into that relationship is through prayer. So let's pray and sing together. Father God, I'm grateful for the hope that you give us in Jesus. That it isn't just about our ability to do life correctly. But it's about a forgiveness bought with a life. It's about relationship with you. About experiencing your kindness and your correction, your conviction and your forgiveness. Father, it is so easy for us to get off track in some way or another. And I ask that you would gently guide us back onto the path that follows you. Jesus, we want to follow you, not just in action, although certainly that, but in heart and mind as well. Holy Spirit, would you lead us, guide us, Form us, change us. Would you lead us into those next steps of following our Savior into hope and peace and life? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.